Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the last in the series of Be A Better Cook for the Delicious Podcast with me, Jilly Smith. Now, back in 2017, I went to the Rudlow Arms in Wiltshire to meet one of the most controversial figures in modern British food culture, gastropunk and bad boy of the kitchen, Marco Pierre White. I found him in reflective mood and we talked for way longer than I could include in episode 11. So here's the rest of it, the extended interview, where he looks back at his place and the story of British food and tells me what he thinks about modern chefs. He starts by talking about the change from classicism in cooking to the trend that he's not terribly fond of for tasting menus. Maybe I'm too old, but the modern school of gastronomy doesn't excite me in the sense that I can't sit there and be told what to eat or how to eat it and I'm forced down a road of 18 or 20 courses or 24 courses of small little knickknacks, canopies on a plate as I like to describe them, of tepid, lukewarm food at best. Mm. Um, because if portions are small, they can't retain their heat. And the problem with the modern-day kitchen, you see a lot of modern-day chefs now, they have air conditioning in the kitchen. They have induction in the kitchen. The problem is kitchens are too cool and too cold. Mm. So therefore, food's cold. Mm. Kitchens have got to be hot, sweaty places. Um, and I've become a little bit disillusioned with uh, Michelin in my older life. Um, but let's not forget, we're being judged by people who have less knowledge. And when I was a young man, I placed so much importance on Michelin. And I respected the criteria of Michelin and what Michelin represented. And this is just my opinion, that I believe that Michelin have diluted their own currency. And how many chefs I speak to today who don't respect Michelin, don't understand Michelin. Because of the cynicism of it, is that the thing that gets you? Because it's a, it's a brand-building exercise. See, when I was a young boy, Michelin was romantic. It really was. Um, every year the guy came out, it was very exciting. Mm. There was real excitement. Uh, today there's no excitement. And it's like in, in, London, in England they give a pub two stars in Michelin. That pub, to me, what I've seen of it, doesn't represent what a two-star restaurant should represent, no disrespect to what they're cooking there. Yeah. It's like in, um, in Singapore they give a hawker centre one star. I don't get it. And how many chefs are confused? It's like, it's like they know by giving a hawker centre 
a mission to start it will get the front page of the, the Straight Times. They know by taking a cell away from Gordon Ramsay at Claridge's, it's going to hit the Times in a big way. But the reality is, is come on. So what Gordon was serving at the Claridge's, they're, they, they're trying to tell me that every other mission star restaurant, one star in France serves better food. I don't believe it. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but, you know, it's look, Michelin is a giant business which wants a, a global business, which they are now. And they're in the business of selling tyres. Not a few red guides, you know. The guides are what create... I mean, let's be honest. The Times aren't going to put Mission's latest tyre on the front page of the Times, are they? <laughs> or the Straight Times. They're going to put some sexy chef. I mean, and you did make food sexy way back when you were the gastropunk you were the hellraiser you were the man who took food into the tabloids and that really did kick start a great interest in young men to come into the industry well not so much but to get some young guys you know jamie oliver was excited to get into the kitchen because it was all about sex and swagger and cigarettes and you know it it, it had rock and roll in it and that was that was what you started well, you, I, don't, I don't know if I can be held responsible for it. Um, well, you know what I mean, though. Um, and, tw- and 25 years later, we've actually got some excellent food in Britain, as a, I think, as a response to that desire to, for young men to be in the kitchen. I, um, the truth is that I, I never tried to be rock and roll. I never tried to be any of those things. And the truth is, is was I really those things? Or were, they t- or were they sort of a product of exaggeration? Well, I mean, you um, did the book White Heat with Bob Carlos Clark, yeah. and you created that. But, but see, book. also, but also to win three stars in Michelin, to win one star, to win two stars, to win three stars, you have to be very focused. You have to be very disciplined, um, which I was. Um, and so, was I this rock and roll creature? No, I, I, the people I hold responsible for the modern-day chef, making it cool and sexy, was not me. It was Bob Collis-Clark and Alan Crompton-Batt. Alan Crompton-Batt was the man who invented restaurant PR, and, and Bob Collis-Clark took those images of me as a young man. I wasn't trying to be rock and roll, maybe because I worked so hard I didn't have time to have my hair cut, you know. Um, maybe I was sufficiently privileged to date and court pretty girls. Um, I'd live my life in Chelsea, you know, not because I thought Chelsea was cool, because La Tante Claire, um, Gavroche were in Chelsea. Um, and so by default, you know, I ended up in Chelsea. I mean, you know, I remember in 1978 when Elvis Costello did the LP This Year's Model with the song Pump It Up, and the other one was I Don't Want to Go to Chelsea. I used to think, what's Chelsea? Then one day I realised what Chelsea was. Um, but, you know, it's... You know, also, I was born... You know, when I started, when I became a t- sort of teenager, it was the Pistols, with Lydon, with Matlock, with Jones, you know. And the world was changing, not just food. The Pistols chased, changed the face of music. Um, and if you look over that, our life is, you know, you had sort of individuals like Che Guevara, who was a, le- a revolutionary with Fidel. You, know, you had the Pistols, you know, you had Mark Boland, 
um, you know, so every world has its mm. individuals who they contribute to that change. And maybe I contributed to that change. But there was lots of very, very, very good cooks. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And, you know, when I'd finished work in Gavroche, I used to go up the New King's Road in 1981. And Alan Crompton Bat was the manager of a brasserie called Kennedy's Brasserie. And he used to... He used to give me cups of coffee. And I'd tell him stories about Gavroche or the box tree. Because Alan had been an economic inspector. And the man who trained him was a man called Inspector Lube. I remember Inspector Lube when I was a boy at the box tree, who many people would say was the pallet behind the throne. And Inspector Lube would always sit on bar window at box tree and then always have coffee and petit four in the Chinese room with Mr. Reed and Mr. Long. He was the only client who ever went to the Chinese room and he had this sort of magical presence did Inspector Lube. So I met this man and I then left London and I went to La Manoir. And when I came back from Manoir, Alan Crompton Bat and his wife Elizabeth had set up and created a PR company for chefs. And he looked after Nico and people like that. But I suppose, look, the media are obsessed with the young. And so therefore, I just arrived back in London at the beginning of... Because when you think, the food revolution really started in the 80s with La Cuisine Nouvelle. The world I stepped into was Escoffier's world, was the tail end of Escoffier's world. All menus were basically the same. Mm. People didn't stray from classicism in Britain, but they'd started to stray because they'd heard about La Cuisine Nouvelle, which in many ways was a monster. We, the English, the British, interpreted it incorrectly. We thought it was strange combinations uh, and small portions. Mm. The truth is, La Cuisine Nouvelle had been invented years previous by a man called Fernand at La Pyramide in Vienne. He had three stars in Michelin. Twelve of his young cooks went on to win three stars in Michelin. But in Britain, there was a, there was a sort of resistance to um, nouvelle cuisine. But, not, but not, not from the chefs, from the customers. From the customers. And so then what happened is it moved out of La Cuisine Nouvelle, so it went from Escoffier's world to La Cuisine Nouvelle, and then it went to something which was quite personal. Uh, but what was interesting is, if you look at the great chefs of their day, the one thing they all had in common was that they respected classicism mm. and those classic combinations. And That still happens now, though, doesn't it? With That's the, what they're teaching in the catering colleges. But you know something? This new label appears called Molecular. It's no different to, it's no different to what La Cuisine Nouvelle was, really. Yeah. You know, its foundation is still classical. Yeah. And who talks about molecular anymore now? It's sort of dissolved and it was just a label. But it was all about the theatre of food. By that time, and I put this again at your door, you know, food became exciting because it was about, you know, um, Conrad had a lot to do with it, the theatre of food, Quaglinos and Bibbendum and, you know, all those... You didn't just go to eat. You went to eat something very classy and stylish but it was the it was the uh, being seen to eat in the 80s and early 90s that was interesting but what conran did 
was genius, what Terence did. He took retail to restaurants. He, he turned them into shops. And I think he was the man who introduced service charge, Conran. I mean, Conran, without question, was a genius. Mm. And what Conran realised was that the environment you sit in is the most important. Yeah. And he made glamour affordable. That's what Terence did. And Terence was really clever. And his first restaurant was the Bibendum. Yeah. But with you know, Simon. And, th- and that, again, is what we were talking about before, is the glamour of food. So sex and rock and roll and glamour and style and space. And, and so it was looking good. Uh, so food became something much, much more important. But there was one thing Conran didn't include in his making of restaurants. There was only one. He did everything so cleverly, did Conran. But for me, none of his, none of his environments were romantic. They were design-led. And so if you think of something like Rudlow, for example, we create a feel here, not a look. Yeah. Conran created a look. Yeah. And, and a very clever look. And if you look at the whole of Conran... You can see they're all siblings, those restaurants. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's what he did. He rolled it out on a massive scale. He was, without doubt, the cleverest restaurateur that I ever met. And, you know, I'm ruled by romance. I make romance. I create romantic environments. Um, I never had a job in my life. Um, Because what I do is a way of life. You know, it's not conventional. My life has never been conventional. That doesn't mean I'm unconventional. It just means I'm not conventional. It's like the way I cooked as a boy. Yes, I respected the classics. But actually, just because the classics say ABC, it doesn't ha- mean it has to be ABC. Mm. And it's about refinement. And if, if you can improve on classicism by changing the method, because it's method which creates the flavour, then you're allowed to do that. So you're not straying from classicism. You're allowing classicism to be your foundation and your inspiration. I mean, look, we had on the menu the other day the roast wild duck with oranges. Duck and orange sauce, the British love. And, you know, I like work. I like getting involved. I I mean, like, a lot of the time I'll just sit in a space and look at it for hours and search for all the imperfection and search for all the perfection. And... I live with imperfection because I think without imperfection you'll never discover perfection. Without mistakes you'll never discover perfection. As I say in life, make mistakes and make lots of them, which I did. But only make the mistakes if you're prepared to take the knowledge from that mistake. Mm. Whether it's in life or whether it's cooking, you have to reflect and take the knowledge from that mistake that you make. Mm. And without mistakes you will never grow emotionally, you will never grow as a cook, you'll never grow as a person. After the break, Marco tells me about how the look of food has changed, the chefs who've come through his kitchen, and one of the most important recipes of his life, his mother's. I think a lot of cooks, they take away the natural beauty of food. I think that the secret of cooking is to actually allow Mother Nature to be herself. What you mean by that is sort of relying on the natural ingredients, the beauty of the ingredients, well, but the, natu- the look of it as well. The natural, sh- the natural shape of, of food and show it off to its true beauty is when you take a pigeon breast and people start to slice them many times and fan them on a plate, you sort of stripped 
mother nature of her beauty um so it's about having confidence so the more you do to food the more you take away from food mm. so the secret is is to simplify and simplify and simplify we live in a world of refinement not invention um as i said cooking is a philosophy it's not a recipe mm. unless it's pastry then it's chemistry um alchemy too it's taking one thing and turning it into something that is beautiful uh, engaging inspiring and you know some may say that that's possibly what you've done through your history of food when i started out in the industry which is over 40 years ago it was blue collar it really was and everybody within the kitchen i first started in were all from council estates it was a trade no different to being a joiner a mechanic um a plasterer a builder a brickie it was it was a laborer's trade and um and how the, f- the food world has changed since those days i mean you walk into kitchens now and you see the, the sons and daughters of aristocrats the upper classes the middle classes public school boys and girls in kitchens it's amazing how it has changed um well, you still get, I mean, I go to catering colleges and I see those same blue-collar workers. You see 16-year-old kids who go into the kitchen. I was talking to Adam Byatt from Trinity in Clapham the other day who sees himself as a mentor to young working-class boys and girls. And he equates it to a sort of national service uh, because they learn a discipline, they have a strong father or mother figure in the kitchen. It's not so different, I think. I mean, possibly what you're talking about is the intention of those young chefs, you know, what they're... What what they want to do with their culinary training, what they, maybe they want to be on television, maybe they want to be in magazines, they want the glory a little bit. Well, that want to be on TV, that want to be in magazines, is the wrong reason to be in a kitchen, in my opinion. When I started out, it was just a job for me. I left school at 16, and then I started working in the kitchens. It was just a job. It wasn't until I went to Box Tree when I was 17 years old, that life changed. And how life changed is firstly my head chef, a man called Michael Lawson, who was the first British chef to win two stars in Michelin. Mr. Ken Lamb, who was the baker, the cake maker. And at night time, he was the um, restaurant at waiter. And... Every night, because I was the youngest in the kitchen and too young to go to the pub, the chefs would nip round to the, um, the pub, the Crown, for the last orders for a pint. And I'd have to go and say goodnight to the bosses, Mr Reed and Mr Long. And I've got to say, I suppose it was Mr Reed and Mr Long that gave me my dream. Because I'd go and say goodnight to them. And then they would tell me the stories about La Serre, La Grand Fifour, Maxime's, Tordajon, Bocuse, Charles Barrier, uh, Rostan. All the greats, all the, all the stories. And, but they spoke in such a visual way that I could almost visualise it. But they spoke about one restaurant being head and shoulders above the rest. Not for food, but for the entire experience was a restaurant called La Serre. And La Serre had three stars in Michelin, and five red knives and forks. I'd never been to La Serre, still never been to La Serre. But that became my dream. I wanted to replicate La Serre. 
by having a restaurant which had three stars in Michelin and five red knives and forks. And they were the gentlemen who inspired me. Michael Lawson, um, Ken Lamb, they inspired me. And they prepared me then for my move from Yorkshire to London. Mm. And they taught me... The, the most important thing that they taught me was struggle. To create struggle for yourself. Because without struggle, there's no creativity. And what did that look like? What did they mean, do you think, looking back on that now? Well, they didn't say, Mark, you have to create struggle. But what I watched and observed and was part of was them spending all their profits and reinvesting them. Rather than buying a flash car, rather than buying living in a large house, they created struggle. So say, for example, they made £2,000 a week. They invested in their restaurant every week £2,000. Right. And... You have to create struggle, because if you don't create struggle, then you become complacent. Yeah. There's, no, there's no creativity. What I, what I learned as a boy of 17 was, and this is what they taught me, it doesn't matter how much it costs, as long as you create the desired effect. And so therefore, there was this little restaurant in the middle of Yorkshire, in the 70s with two stars in Michelin there were only other there was only three more restaurants which had two stars at the time one was the Waterside one was the Gavroche and one was the Connaught with the great Michel Bourdain and that was before Tonclair that was before La Mamora Cazaison that was before Nico mm. that was before all of them and those two individuals what was very special about them Every alternate weekend they would go to France and they would dine in the great three stars. They were jackdaws in the sense that they ate a dish and they brought that dish back to Box Tree. Mm. And then they got Michael Lawson to cook it for them Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday until they replicated the exact dish that they'd had in France. Mm. And so therefore they weren't taking inspiration. What they were doing is replicating which is interesting. They weren't, because they were so humbled by what they'd eaten, they didn't want to change it because they regarded it as being perfect, mm. uh, which is, shows great humility. Yeah. Rather than thinking, I'll take this little idea and twist it around in my own little way. No, they didn't. They were very, very, very clever. So they'd be fed it at 6 o'clock. Now, at 6.30, Michael Lawson, like a young man, would walk through and be told how to change it, what he'd done right and what he'd done wrong. By Saturday, it was on the menu. Wow. But that's not what you did at Harvey's then, was it? You, you created a very much a, a Marco signature. Well, it's firstly, I don't believe you can reinvent the wheel. I was a classicist, so I stuck to the classics. If I changed anything, it was just construction of dishes. For example, like the Tagliatelle of oysters with caviar. They've been serving oysters and caviar for years. They've been serving seafood pasta for years. It was the whole concept of it, of taking the pasta cooked in the emulsion, placing the shell with the gently poached oyster, with the cucumber, with the burr, champagne, and with the caviar. It was a whole construction. Because when I used to create dishes, what was very important to me was that when the, the client 
or the eater was halfway through, it still looked elegant on the plate. I don't like food when it turns messy, and I think the less you put on a plate, the more chance you have of creating perfection. I think the more you put on a plate, the more you take away from food. And if you put six, seven, eight, nine, ten items on a plate, the chance of creating perfection is minimal. And that's why certain chefs never achieved greatness mm. because they overworked it, they overcomplicated it, they overthought it. Mm. And what they were looking at is the visual, not the eating. Mm. It's all about the eating. And it's interesting because when you use the word perfection, that was one of the reasons that you got in food into the tabloids because you didn't want anyone to mess with your food. You didn't want anyone to add any salt and pepper. It was a, a work of art that you got very cross when people started playing with. Well, firstly, the only reason I never had salt and pepper on my tables when I first started, it wasn't being a prima donna, it's because I couldn't afford really beautiful salt and pepper Really, isn't that pots. That's the reason. It wasn't being arrogant. Um, and because everyone's got a different palate. Some people want more salt than others. Mm. And it's like, you know, in that latter stage of my career, what I realised is Asian clients, you have to season their food slightly less. Mm. Because I was always a person who seasoned to the max. And so, therefore, that was perfection for me. Mm. If you go a few granules over, it's now salty. So, therefore, I would insist on drinking gallons and gallons of water through a service. So, when I'm not dehydrating and craving salt. Secondly, my palate's always forever been cleansed. Yeah. Um, so, you have to respect other people's palates. Yes. Let's talk about the people who came out of your kitchen. And there have been many, many great chefs who have gone on and trained other people since. I'm thinking of Philip Howard and Stephen Terry amongst, you know, many, many more. Did you recognise that position from the beginning? Well, they were young men, and you just mentioned the name Philip Howard. Philip Howard was, was most probably the most intellectual chef that ever came through my kitchen and went on to win two stars in Michelin, did Philip. Really, really, really intelligent chef. Thought about what he put on a plate and kept it very simple. Mm. Um, no, super intelligent was Philip. Mm. And a very good man. Yeah. And, is, of course, he's doing fantastic things for British food. He's really pressing forward that message of sustainability. Who else do you remember who has gone on to great things or, you know, that you saw great potential in right from the first? Well, you know... There were people like Mario Batali, there was people like Eric Chevaux, there was people like Gordon Ramsay, uh, Danny Clifford at Midsummer's House. Um, and there's lots more who've gone on. Um, what did you spot in Gordon? Gordon was hard-working. He was really hard-working. And um, he, was, he was different to people like Philip Howard, people like Mario Batali. Uh, Eric Chevaux. Eric Chevaux was without question the most talented chef that ever came through my kitchens in the sense that he had a natural ability. It came natural um, for Eric and he went on to win two stars at the Capitol, did Eric. Um, but when I think of the greatest chefs I ever worked with, the greatest cooks that I ever worked with, I've got to think of Pierre Kaufman. I've got to think of Roland Lahore, who no one's ever heard of. I've got to think of the great Marc Bourgeois, who's one of Pierre's best friends. And he was a great friend of Alain Chappelle, but a wonderful, wonderful cook. And he was the chef tourner of the Rue Company. In many ways, he had the most um, 
important position because he would replace chefs when they went on holiday or if they fell ill. His knowledge was extraordinary, but his touch was extraordinary. And, you know, watching him on the stove was like watching Chopin play the piano. Just extraordinary. That ability to multitask, but seem effortless. But his palate was extraordinary. And that's the difference um, between a, a great chef and a chef who cooks well mm. is the ability to simplify everything, make everything seem effortless and have a wonderful palate. Yeah. And of course, certain people become leaders and other people just go off and work in normal restaurants. You know, the people you mention were the leaders, they for very different reasons. Well, not everybody. Um, the one thing you can't do is turn someone into a Michelin-starred chef. You don't have that ability. All you can do is give them three-star discipline. How they use that is up to them. Mm. So, like, cooks who worked with me, some of them may have gone into... Um, they, may, they may have opened a fish and chip shop, they may have opened a cafe, they may have opened a steakhouse, they may have opened a burger bar. But what they do is they take that three-star discipline to that world. And there's nothing wrong in that, because not everyone wants to make that personal sacrifice mm. of winning three stars in Michelin. Yeah. Let's talk about the recipe. The question is really, what is the most important recipe that brings you back to home? And that doesn't mean to be, doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, where you live. It's the place where your heart is. Um... If I think, I suppose if I cast my mind back to my childhood, I think my favourite dinner cooked by my mother, because my mother died when I was six, um, was a very simple dinner, actually. And she was very clever, was my mother. She was a very good cook, because she was Italian. And so a lot of the time we had pasta, or we had the risotto, because risotto was from the region where my mother's from, it was from that Veneto region, uh, just outside Verona, on the edge of Lake Garda, a little village called Badolino. And um, I suppose when she'd had a tough day and she had to knock something together very quickly, she used to just chop onions quite coarsely, uh, crush garlic, throw it off in generous, generous amounts of olive oil, and um, with the bacon as well, streaky bacon just chopped up, and then add lots of tomato puree and work it through and cook it through, and then add the pasta to it. Because what a lot of people tend to do wrong when they make pasta is they tend to put too much sauce with it. Because pasta is all about the pasta, the sauce is secondary. It's almost like dressing a salad, really. So when you cook pasta, you've got to treat it like dressing a salad. It's just to coat it, to flavour it. But the pasta is the key. Mm. And so that's all my mother did, and then just grated parmesan over. And so there was no recipes, onions, garlic, streaky bacon, cooked in generous amounts of good quality olive oil, tomato puree out of the tube in those days, mm. and bang, work it through, and then just drain the pasta and add it, and then work it through. What kind of pasta? Oh, spaghettini. Mm. Uh, but, you know, she may have used macaroni, you know, whatever we had in the pantry. It's about simplifying everything. And also, at home, the pan went to the table. It wasn't put into bowls and brought to the table. And it was served at the table. And I think part of eating is about eating correctly. And, and so, therefore, you really appreciate it. And so, therefore, 
again going back to my time as a cook the less you have on your plate the more you enjoy it when you put all those different ingredients it just becomes a mess in the end and the palate's overloaded with different flavours and you know I find and I was guilty of this as a young man because when you're young you tend to feel that you have to use your technical ability but really what should happen is as your confidence grows your complication dissolves you tend not to overwork food you tend to see the true beauty within food and allow it to be itself and as I've said all great chefs have three things in common firstly they accept and they respect that mother nature is a true artist secondly everything that they do is an extension of themselves and thirdly and most importantly they give you great insight into the world where they were born the world which inspired them and they serve it on their plates it's that simple and I find a lot of chefs today and this is not trying to be controversial this is just my opinion is they cook by numbers recipes dictate I can't speak for home cooks Um, but what I can do because I spend enough time in a professional kitchen is to speak for professional cooks Mm. and it's cooking by numbers Mm. you know some people paint by them, some people cook by them. Yeah. Take me back to uh, paint a little picture of m- little Marco, pre six in Leeds, with two big brothers and your mother cooking that spaghettini. Well, I don't, I don't really think of my brothers. My father and my brothers didn't really play a, a role in my early life because my brothers are six and seven years older than me. Mm. So therefore, I spent my days with my mother. Um, and you know, like most young boys, they sit on the side of the table in the kitchen and they watch their mothers cook. It's like when I was a boy in Italy, I remember my auntie Luciana, my nonna and my mother all preparing, sat around the table preparing minestrone. Mm. And I was sat underneath the table. Um, and it's very easy to romanticise your early life. But I can genuinely say from zero to six, the memories that I have were in full colour. Mm. From six to 16, it sort of turned into black and white. Um, and that warmth of life had been removed after her death. Um, and so, and also, when a child suffers such tragedy, uh, like I did as a, as a young boy, is what happens in time is that tragedy manifests itself into anger that's what pain that's what happens with pain and so therefore food was without question the greatest release as I say gastronomy is the greatest form of therapy any misfit could ever be exposed to and I was that misfit I didn't really fit within the world I entered and nor would I have fitted into any world because I was that square peg which would never fit in a round hole And that's it until the spring when I'll be back with a special podcast on the link between food and mental health. In the meantime, you can catch up with all the podcast episodes at deliciousmagazine.co.uk slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see you soon.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.